Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton with you right here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's episode. So in today's show, we're going to be discussing one of our favorite topics, which is the manufacturing industry. Love manufacturing. Uh, and today's conversation is going to be really focused on Africa, in particular, the market of Kenya. So, so get ready. Stay tuned for an intriguing and informative conversation where you're going to learn quite a bit. Hey, quick programming note, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to venture over to wherever you get your podcast from, Supply Chain Now, and subscribe so you don't miss conversations just like this. We'd also would love to earn your podcast review. Let us know how we're doing. Um, that'll also help us get the word out and reach more people, which is a good thing. Okay, I want to welcome in two wonderful guests here today. I'll tell you, we've got a great conversation teed up. We've been enjoying the pre-show conversation, learn, learn some new things about uh, some repeat guests here. Uh, so we'll talk more about that, but I want to welcome in our guest today, Musha Kuniha, Chairman of Kenya Association of Manufacturers and Group CEO of CKL Africa, which I'm sure you've heard of, the rest of us have. Um, we're talking about pets and animals and needs pre-show. We'll learn more about that. And uh, old friend, repeat guest, Deborah Dole, Principal Manufacturing Product Management at GE Digital and really exciting, Founder Circular Supply Chain Network. Now talk about chasing your passions. So stay tuned as we learn more about that. So Mushai, Deborah, good morning. How are you doing? Tremendous. Thanks, Scott. You bet. Yeah, it's it's good afternoon from Kenya, but doing well. <laughs> yeah, these all gone. Great to have you both. And, and Deborah, uh, it, gosh, it's been forever since we were in Atlanta on wh whatever episode number that is. The world's changed dramatically, but hey, um, in, in good ways and challenging ways, but it's great to have you back. And thanks so much for bringing Musha uh, to the conversation today. I tell you, just just doing my homework you, on you, Musha, you're you're a, um, a, bit, a global business star, and it's great to dive into uh, your perspective here today. I don't know. I don't know about that. I'm a Kenyan based <laughs> a Kenyan. businessman. So at least a couple of people know me in Nairobi. Sometimes I go into a restaurant and they think, eh, looks familiar, but we don't know who he is. So <laughs> not that much of a star. That might be a good way to be, though. That might be a good way to be. Yes. Um, yes. All right. So Deborah and Musha, mm -hmm. I want to start before we get into business and, and um, you know, talk about some of the interesting things taking place right now. I want to get to know you a little bit better. So, uh, Musha, since you're this is your first time with us, I want to start with you. So, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, and and give us the goods on your upbringing a little bit. Okay, yeah, thanks, and thanks for having me on the show. This is uh, going to be interesting, I think, even from the pre-show conversation. So, I'm uh, Kenyan-born um, in a small, smallish town, about 150 kilometers from Nairobi, called Nakuru, but grew up most of my life in Nairobi. So, I'm more or less a city boy, so to speak. Um, went, went to school here, just went to university in uh, the UK, in Wales for three long uh, wet years. It rains a lot in Wales, <laughs> so, um, but it was a good time. And I, I studied law, that's what I started on off. 
Um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do when I left high school. And uh, one of my dad's friends thought that, you know, you could do law, it, it opens doors for you. And he was right, because I did do the law. I practiced, I came back to Kenya, qualified to be uh, a lawyer, but really didn't enjoy it. So went straight into the family business. And I've been doing business uh, ever since I was back in uh, 1998. Yeah. Well, there's so much more to that story. I appreciate you kind of giving it at a high level, but I got one follow-up question. So growing up, you said primarily you were a city boy, as you put it, uh, in Nairobi, and then spent time, of course, in Wells. Let's talk food for a second. What <clears throat> uh, in what was a, a key food dish that was part of your upbringing that that you still can't get enough of? Ah, that's it's easy. It's chapati. Have you heard of chapati? I have not. You've not heard about chapati. Maybe Deborah has. So chapati is uh, it's a wheat based. It's like a cake. It's almost like naan um, cooked on a pan. And it's Indian. I think originally it's from India, but it came, uh, we had a huge um, Indian influx at the beginning of the previous century, and it became part of our national food. So chapatis are still a challenge for me. And as probably Scott, you may know, at a certain age, not everything that is nice to eat is good for you. (laughs) So I'm now on a restricted number of chapatis a week. (laughs) I'm with you. I am with you yeah, uh, just in that aspect yeah. of the journey. Um, yes. All right. So th- thanks for sharing. I'm going to have to check out Japati for sure. Um, okay. All right. So Deborah, same question. Again, great to have a, a repeat guest. We've been, of course, tracking all the big things you've been up to in the 18 months, two years or so it's been. Um, uh, so tell us, you know, where did you grow up? Uh, refresh our memory a bit and give us you know, a couple anecdotes from your upbringing. Sure. Thanks, Scott, for having us. And a huge thanks for Mushai for joining us. I'm really excited that we could do this together. Uh, I grew up in a fairly small rural area in the geographic center of Washington state up in the upper left-hand corner of the states. Uh, And both my parents had grown up on farms. And so we were kind of like in the biggest small town around, you know, I remember when we got a, a escalator in high school, one story in the department store that was the Bon Marche at the time. Uh, it's a it's a now no longer existing uh, department store, which I uh, and anyhow we actually went and rode that for fun. So that just gives you an idea of of the entertainment levels. Um, but very similar to Mushai, I actually have been a city girl at heart always. And how that happened growing up in a small place, I'm not entirely sure, but. One element that's been tough this last year is not being in cities because they're not very fun in the middle of a global pandemic. And I really miss the energy that comes with being around so many people. And uh, so that's that's the, a, a common theme between the two of us. And also similarly, I didn't know what I wanted to do after school. Um, being in a smaller town, our guidance counselors, you know, they asked, what do you want to do? Well, I want to travel. And they were like, well, how about being a stewardess? Oh, you gosh. Know, not even flight attendant. This is early 2000s, you know? Yes. And I thought, gosh, there's got to be something else out there. And so <laughs> I also chose business because I figured everybody buys things. And so that would be a ticket out of the country for me. Uh, so a lot of parallels uh, between us, I think, Mishai. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it uh, for <laughs> sure. And and travel you have done. I mean, a lot of the the the, uh, the aspect of your journey has been global in nature. We'll, we'll touch on more of that. And you know, uh, Mushai, when I first sat down, with Deborah, 
I gathered that when she mentioned she'd be on holiday uh, in, in the next month or so. And I, and I had to pause in true American form. Wait, wait a second. Holiday. What is that? And now oh, vacation. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, so <laughs> I learned a lot from Deborah in that first interview and, and, and ever since. Um, one more follow-up question for you, Deborah. You mentioned uh, pre-show that you're learning something new musically. Please share. Yes. Yeah. So these last couple of months, uh, my husband and I have been in Hawaii. Uh, we kind of looked around and said, where is warm to spend winter that is also safe uh, in this pandemic we're in? And so we've picked the big island of Hawaii, extremely safe. Everybody gets tested on the way in. Um, and so in being here, I asked for an ukulele for Christmas and I have been learning. I'm I'm good enough that we can have a really fun time. Uh, the way that the uke is um, tuned helps you sound really good, even without only having to know a few chords. And so the hardest part has been learning to do different strums. Uh, but it's been a whole lot of fun to have a hammock strung up and um, have a little slice of island life in between all the normal uh, jobs, work, and everything else that goes along with being an adult. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I bet some of those days you can take it out on that ukulele after a long day of work, right? Oh, yeah. so, <laughs> yes. All right. So, uh, well, well, thank you so much for indulging us. I appreciate the opportunity uh, for us and our community and the audience to get to know you both a little bit better on a human level. It's important. Um, all right. So now let's talk about your professional journey. I think I think this this aspect is important, especially as we kind of look to identify the context or the lens of, of how you view um, the global business world. So, Mushab, starting back with you, tell us, you know, you've done a ton, both of y'all done a ton, ton um, in your, your business journeys, but if you would um, pick a couple of key roles that really impacted your worldview. Thanks. Yeah. Like I said, um, I started off as a lawyer. Well, a, a student lawyer, and as I was doing my apprenticeship, I kind of decided this is not really going to work for me. Um, I think I remember the conversation around that was uh, with another student lawyer as well. He said one of the problems with this being a lawyer is that um, you sit there in the office and people bring you their problems, and then you try and solve them. So there's no the extent of your creativity is limited to the depth of their problem or the challenge that they're facing. And sometimes it's, you know, they just want a mortgage or a contract or something. So I thought I wanted to be a bit more creative. So I said, you know, when you're outside, you can be a bit more creative. I can start a new business. I can do something new and, you know, it's all, it's all new. So um, my family was into business. My dad was in business as well. So what I first did was to help my mom in business. And I've actually been in the family business ever since. So it's partly family business that I've been engaged in. Started off with um, selling detergents, uh, which is a business my dad was in, uh, industrial detergents, went into cleaning, cleaning services. That was uh, pretty tough. That was my first uh, like executive role. So I was like, you're going to run this business for us, which was quite a challenge. I was still very young, but uh Good lessons, you know, dealing with people. At that time, I had like, at the peak, I think I had 400 staff or something. So wow. it was uh, quite That's challenging big. then. Yeah, especially yeah, for big. your first uh, kind of CEO role, it sounds like. Yes, yes, yes. So what's, if, if uh, I can... 
if I can ask Actually, you, most of them are cleaner, so it's not too not too difficult. <laughs> What's the if, if I could interject for a second? You know, yeah. we, we've all had those that, that first mm-hmm. big role, right? Uh, and it teaches us some some really good things and inspiring things, and, and makes us want to you know work around the clock. And then it can teach us some really challenging things, kind of the the punch to the gut. What was a, a early lesson learned from that that early leadership role? Yeah, I think the one one I remember is uh, broad responsibility. So, like as a CEO, you need to know you've got to have a big picture of what everything, what's going on, everything's going on. So, the one that I remember that hit me hardest was um, uh, some of our taxes, actually. So, we kind of got to audit later on, and then um, the auditor says, "Well, you know, you're kind of behind on these taxes." And I look at the accountant, and I'm like. Um, uh why <laughs> and he said oh well you know i thought i should pay this first and i should do this first and i'm like it's taxes man you pay the taxes first so that took me a while to sort out and and to figure out that there are some important questions you must ask even when you because you're delegating work to others but there are some important questions that you need to know what are those questions that you need to ask um uh, whoever you are you've delegated to yeah yeah Excellent point. I so, think you know, that was that was one. Yeah, yeah. But so so anyway, yeah. Um, from cleaning, cleaning was the beginning, and then I, I I joined the main family business. Unfortunately, my dad passed away in 1998, so I went into his main business, which was then um, it was then called Cooper Kenya. It's now CKL Africa, and this was um, at that time it was an animal health input business. So we had uh, he had inherited. Um, uh, the region kind of bought the company that distributed products for Cooper's Animal Health. It's now Merck. It's now part of Merck and MSD Animal Health. So we st- we are there still our principals and we sell their products here. We manufacture and sell their products uh, for the regional market here in Kenya. Uh, and that's where I've been now for 20 something years, 20 odd years. Uh, we've grown in the range of products that we sell beyond the MSD range. We a lot of focus on nutrition and productivity because the, the goal has been to try and help farmers produce more. And then we had a bit of real estate. So this business that my dad had got into had some real estate on it, which was in the past a farm. So out of that, I didn't mention that. When I said I didn't know what I wanted to do, one of my options was to be an architect. Okay. I was like, maybe I should be an architect. Maybe I should draw buildings and stuff. I like to art. So anyway, in the end, uh, we, we started development, a development uh, business, built a couple of houses, ended up building a hotel, which we were running. Unfortunately, the hotel is now closed. It didn't survive COVID. Um, and we still got a real estate business that we're running alongside um, what we're doing. And then a few bits and bobs. You know, family business is always investing in this. And that. Yes, multifaceted is what I'm hearing. Well, uh, so we'll circle back because we're going to ask you more about um, some of the things you're doing currently. But Deborah, coming back to you, uh, same question. You know, if you could walk us through a couple of those key roles earlier in your journey that helped shape how you view the world and and um, and kind of how your lens evolved, how you look at challenges and and uh, successes and you name it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, very similar. Again, you know, early, early in my career, I was thrown into a leadership role uh, to launch Surface V1. And I kind of looked up 
maybe 24, 25 years old, and all of a sudden had three full-time teams reporting to me. And I did kind of a crummy job with a lot of them. You know, I, I didn't really understand the right way to inspire people. Everyone was really stressed out. Uh, there was a lot of deadlines. And so I learned a, a large spectrum of situational leadership, we'll call it. In these situations, this seems to work really well. And in these situations, I seem to be demotivating instead of motivating the team. And really through those couple of really tough months, you know, long, long hours in the office, a lot of executive pressure. Um, I reflect on that time a lot and think about the type of leader I want to be and how I want to show up for the team. Uh, I, I think a lot about the types of questions to ask to Mushai's point um, and often find that by asking the right questions, um, teams end up feeling more empowered and um, able to manage themselves a lot better. And so early, early on, I uh, had that experience, certainly had um, ups and downs through my leadership development in the, in the past decade or so. Um, but that was a big, a, a big role for me. And, and the positive piece of that was having a leader who set out a big challenge for me and expected me to fill the shoes. Uh, and that type of high expectation, high performance um, was really very impactful early in, in my career. And so finding those types of leaders who, um, it doesn't matter if you're new out of school, it doesn't matter if you're not a traditional fit for the role, um, but to spot talent and really give them a chance to excel was um, also very impactful to me. Well, I, I can only imagine an especially innovative product, you know, in, in the first version of it, uh, by the way. So, but I, I completely agree with you. You know, I think, those lessons we learn in those early roles, you know, motivation, inspiration, and, and just the technical side of how to lead, right? And and for you to have that, especially that role at 24, 25 years old, man, what a wonderful um, warts and all, you know, as someone said, <laughs> you know, what a wonderful opportunity that clearly impacted you as a leader. Um, so I love that. I appreciate you sharing. Let's let's move forward a little bit because I want to talk about what y'all are both up to now. Um, you know, there's so much and we could have a six-hour show really on all the different things you're involved in. And, and Deborah, for, for now, I want to stick with you because then I want to circle back to um, Misha. So the Circular Supply Chain Network, which you founded, which there has been a ton of buzz across social and, 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 and even in human conversations we're having, right? You're becoming a, a, a mythical personality around circularity, which is a wonderful thing. Because it needs a voice, right? It needs conversation. So tell us the inspiration between uh, behind find, uh, founding it and then what it is. Uh, and I'm really excited because um, Mushai is, is really a thought leader in Kenya and through East Africa and across the continent globally. We've been on panels together around what does circularity mean, uh, especially in resource-constrained environments, uh, which has been something that's been um, quite refreshing as we're exploring this. So how this all worked... Um, I kind of tripped and fell into circular economy three, four years ago. I found the concept, got my head around it and thought, gosh, this seems really big for supply chain, but didn't see a lot of other voices talking about circularity and supply chain. And so I started talking about it. And actually, the first time I gave a keynote was at the SAPEX conference with our friend Jenny Froome and uh, in Cape Town. And, and thankfully, they invited me back and I can share, you know, as thoughts progress and I get to present there every year, which is great. 
there was this interesting week this last September where, gosh, about a dozen strangers reached out on LinkedIn and were like, hey, is there a place that supply chain professionals get together to talk about this? And I was like, nope. And they were like, can you start one? Absolutely not. I don't have time for this. But it was a kind of a magical week where just so many people had recommended it. And so I put a Zoom link out in the world and um, nine people showed up. And then the next month, 30 people showed up. And then the next month, more people showed up. And all of a sudden, we needed breakout rooms and um, realized that there was a real interest and curiosity about what circularity means for our field. Uh, at the same time, a recognition that supply chain has such a big impact out in the world. And if we make better decisions, we can literally save the planet. Uh, so started this um, self-selecting volunteers have come and found me. We've got volunteers on every continent, not, not Antarctica. Um, not yet. And we've got folks who call in from every continent. When we have these events, we've got a couple different time zones. And so it's been really wonderful, actually, to be able to have so many people joining from so many countries and so many time zones across so many parts of their careers and all wanting to contribute to, you know, changing the way that our field works. So we're a volunteer-led nonprofit, and we, we do the best we can and move exactly as fast as we can. Uh, but it's been, a, it's been a really cool experience these last six months or so. Love it. And I look forward to uh, um, you know, just facilitating and driving dialogue as simple maybe as that sounds so many people listen to this it's so important uh whether it's industry or whether it's societal or whatever so i love i love the leadership role you and your organization are playing there and look forward to big things to come so we'll, uh, we'll have to uh, bring you back on and get our finger on the pulse of what the circular supply chain network is uh up to all right so musha i want to talk about the um kenya association manufacturers but before we leave this topic of circularity what you know, clearly you're a well-respected leader in this space. Um, a couple thoughts there, and then we'll move into manufacturing. Good impression, yeah. So um, I think when we think about circularity, and um, like Deborah mentioned earlier, this resource-constrained um, environment. So for me, even when I started working in the family business, and as I've worked here and grown into it, you, you actually see the challenges of Africa in manufacturing and just our general economies. We are still, um, well, we're, we're probably the poorest continent still to in many large measures, uh, financially and so on economically. So it's always been a challenge for me is how are we building? What's the contribution? What are we building in our environment and what are we growing? And to some extent, it's an issue of stewardship. Uh, I kind of come from a Christian background and we had this whole thing about We've got to be stewards of the earth that we have. So are we making the most of what we have and what we're doing? So it's about growing jobs and systems and that kind of thing. But obviously, um, also in uh, stewardship does involve taking care of things beyond uh, what we're using. And I got into this, I kind of fell into this accidentally because uh, at the Association of Manufacturers, we had, um, uh, this was in 97, no, sorry, 2017, was that 18? When we had a, the first plastics bags ban in Kenya, and I was heading the legal and regulatory committee as, at the association. So we were trying to negotiate with government around this ban and these issues. Because as they drafted it, actually, technically, they, they basically banned all plastic packaging. That's, that's what the law was drafted as. So manufacturers were like, you know, how are we going to get soap out? How are we going to get 
anything out if we can't package it and so on. But we did manage to um, negotiate and engage with government and realize that the big issue was the shopping bags. And uh, so that was sorted out. And we, But we realized this is going to be a continuing story because the next thing was water bottles, the PET bottles and so on. And we had other manufacturers uh, dealing with the same issue. So we started looking around and saying, what are the options? What are other people doing? This is not the first time it's being done in the world. Some of our members are multinational, so they also had contacts um, with people all over the world. And uh, that got us engaged into thinking about the big picture. You might have a small issue with plastic here, but you've got a bigger issue around uh, the environment and, and so on. Um, at the Association of Manufacturers, we also host the global network. And that's part of the UN. It started under the UN, under their sustainable development goals. They decided that they want the private sector to, to also participate in this. And so they formed this group called the Global Network. And we, we kind of host it and run it within the Association of Manufacturers and try and get companies to uh, subscribe to the sustainable development goals. And so there you then you're back to sustainability and circularity, I guess, just comes out of this thing. It's how we're going to get this sustainability done well. And in Africa, like I say, it's it's always a challenge because, um, and it was even um, in the prime, the Paris climate change discussions and so on. The challenge that China and India always bring to the table, which in a sense speaks for the third world, is that we also want to get better lives. You know, we want to electrify the countryside, people want to drive cars, uh, people want to live a certain lifestyle. And to get there means we are going to have to do, you know, our carbon footprint is going to grow, basically, is, is what they're saying. So that's always been a challenge. But then we are starting to think about, okay, what are the alternatives? How can we do this better? Because sometimes we can skip uh, some of the phases that other countries went through. Um, but we still do need to develop. The development challenge is, and the demand for development here is very high. We have a very young population. Um, people are going to need to live and eat and get better lifestyles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the same time, that as, as much as a challenge that, that might be the population growth, it's also a wonderful uh, advantage, um, and and the ideas and innovation and leadership, and uh, it's all a, a tremendous uh, upside for business opportunities that that are already coming into uh, across Africa, and 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 what will be growing. We've had a couple of different interviews that folks were were uh, informing us and teaching us about the uh, the startup environment across Africa, which is really cool. Um, all right, so there's so much, yeah, lots of opportunity there. Um, so much to talk about, so little time. Uh, Mushai and Deborah, one last thing. I love how y'all both kind of speak to the practicality of, of circularity, right? Because I think that for non-technologists and, and maybe um, non-engineers and, and maybe even non-practitioners, I think they've got to be able to understand and, and understand the steps in the path of the, the plastics Musha was a great example. And um, I think that'll help us all make more traction and move the needle sooner and earlier and, and with bigger movements, maybe. So I appreciate y'all's leadership here. Okay. Uh, Musha, you mentioned the Kenya Association of Manufacturers. Elaborate a little bit more about what that organization does. 
Yeah, so we are about uh, 62 years old as an organization here, and we bring together manufacturers. It's a voluntary organization. And um, we've got 14 different sectors of manufacturing that are covered. And these are people in, in, in Kenya, you know, you've got everything from steel to leather, uh, to pharmaceuticals, to agro-processing. And we kind of bring them together and we try and um, represent their issues to government, to regulators, uh, tax-related issues, and of course, even developmental issues like this, you know, about how are we also gonna grow the manufacturing um, industry. In fact, our tagline is inspiring global competitiveness because um, you know Africa has always had this potential for growing its um, industrial base. And uh, well, historically, what we've seen in other continents everywhere, they the kind of economic growth comes up when you have a big industrial base because it can create jobs, value adding. Because at the end of the day, what manufacturing does is creating value by value adding to different materials, etc. So that's what we want to do, and we're trying to advocate that from um, government perspective, but also from our members. So we do have an aspect of trying to train and develop our members to be better manufacturers, to be more competitive manufacturers. Um, we do a bit of work trying to open markets. So we've been busy um, with the East African community. We have some kind of uh, market around here. But now the new kid on the block or so the new project is the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. Right. And uh, actually earlier on, we were just on a call talking about how we're going to make this a reality. At the moment, it's a... It's a proposal, it's an idea, it's got political buy-in, but there's a lot, like you mentioned, there's a lot of technical work that needs to go in to make it happen. And we are hoping that's going to um, open up a little bit of the, more of the markets uh, in here. We've got about uh, 1,500 members spread across Kenya, all sizes from the largest corporates, the largest manufacturers. And we have a specific uh, project as well to small and micro manufacturers, people just starting out where we can also kind of educate them and give them um, input and help. Because we say even the largest manufacturer started out as a small manufacturer one day. Might have right. been 200 years ago, but at some point, they were just a small manufacturer doing a small thing. Agreed. And so we, we think there we can build our future giants and champions yeah, out of that. I love that. Um, I love that. You know, speaking of which, you know, the Clorox company, uh, we, we dove into their history a few weeks back and uh, I'm not going to get the names. I can't remember all the names, but what, one of the biggest turning points in that and now that global behemoth was uh, uh, there was a husband and wife team that essentially kind of came in early in, in the 1800s and, and, and changed operations and, and also had a big impact on strategy and, and, and the uh, the husband kind of focused on operations and the wife really dove into changing how they sold the product. So the Clorox company was selling to the industrial space initially, but um, I can't remember this individual's name. She said, Hey, let's sell to homes and, and there's gonna be lots of personal uses for, for this bleach product that changed the course of history for the Clorox company. Uh, and it's really just a fast, it's, it's, it's to your point, Mushai, it's those early Eureka moments, right? Where, where we, we, force ourselves not to do what we've been doing for a couple of years, but, but change pace. And, and it opens up these huge doors. Uh, so I, I love what you're doing. I love the conversations. I mean, y'all, y'all got a lot of kindred spirits between the two of you, you know, ha, uh, facilitating these conversations that benefit, can benefit so many, whether you, you're part of a big company or you're part of a small company or you're an entrepreneur 
or you're a practitioner, um, it's really important. So I want to bring Deborah. I'll bring you back into the conversation. I want to kind of talk about a couple of observations, kind of across Africa. And Musha, you mentioned um, you know some of the free trade and some of the economic initiatives that are taking place that I think can really unite countries across the continent. Uh, wonderful opportunities. So we look forward to, to see more progress there. But but Deborah, you're you're um, you you spent time and worked uh, across Africa. What when it, when you think of manufacturing and some of those things that Musha touched on. What comes to your mind? Super, thanks. I um, a global trend, which I'm hoping will um, stick. As we're talking about the small manufacturers, we're gonna swing back, folks. Like we've spent the last 150, 200 years trying to figure out how to industrialize and make massive manufacturing centers, and it's not gonna last. We are shipping items way too far distance-wise. Uh, Most food in America goes 2,000 miles per ingredient. Your jeans probably went 40,000 miles. Your iPhone has been around the moon and back before you even got to turn it on. This is kind of getting out of hand. And it's it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, um, like Mushai said, if a country can establish itself as a manufacturing powerhouse, it's a tremendous way to unlock growth. And in fact, that has been the history for this last 50 years or so in the global stage. However, at the other side, if we can properly decentralize or hold on to these micro smaller manufacturing hubs and make only what's needed with regionally harvested materials, we unlock such economic power and less dependency on trading partners. Now I am all for global trade, of course, however, As materials continue to pass borders, we continue to open ourselves to disruption like we have seen in this last year. So I think this idea of these smaller manufacturers will be holding um, more weight as we go into the future. They're still gonna be highly um, digitized, highly technical. Uh, So there's certainly some development work to do around the world there. But if we look at Unilever's nano factory, they just put out an entire food production line in a 40 foot container, Uh, not to be outdone, Microsoft has put an entire server farm in a 40 foot container. Much of uh, the uh, inspiration was to be able to provide server services in resource constrained environments. So it's a completely self-contained container that can be placed down anywhere in the world. Uh, And I think this is going to be really exciting and and a a great use of entrepreneurship that exists across Africa, especially in Kenya. You know, um, I don't know, Mushai, if this is real, but when I was there, I was told it's like the Silicon Savannah, the digital startup mentality in Nairobi. I mean, I've been to a couple of incubators and what's happening there is just tremendous. We see wonderful, wonderful um, inspiration. For example, mobile money started first in Kenya. We don't even have it here. And the ability to pay for anything with just texting, we can do it now with the iPhone and you touch it to something and it works. But um, the idea of mobile money has been around for so long and we don't even have that yet. Cash on delivery, we don't do that. And wouldn't that be cool? So anyhow, there's a lot um, that we can share with each other. And I think with organizations like um, what Mushai runs connected to other similar organizations around the world, we can learn a lot and swap a lot. And I think as we need to go sort of, I don't want to say back to a decentralized way, because we never had 
robotic automated 5G factories before. But as we move towards this together, uh, we're going to see a different pace of growth. And I don't think the disparity among the different regions around the world has to be as large as it has been. All right. That's a lot of goodness you just shared there, Deborah. Um, uh, uh, Michelle, I want to come back to you here. Based on anything she just shared, what, what would you like to pick up on? And of course, would love to hear your observations on the local manufacturer market as well. Yeah, I think I think that will, you know the shorter supply chains is definitely one of the issues. Well, and I think the the whole conversation about the environment and um, what we need to do going forward, the big stories, is quite complicated. So, and we always need to think about the trade offs and be honest about that. There will be some trade offs. Plus, but that doesn't mean that there are no solutions. It's just that there are trade offs. So you you have to balance these things out. So, um, like. Uh, one of Africa's historical complaints is that we issue a lot of raw materials. You know, we grow a lot of things and then we ship them out and then they are processed somewhere else, which again is unnecessary. Because you'd be surprised, do you know, Scott, which is the largest exporter, which country is the largest exporter of coffee in the world? Which country? Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I don't know. I don't want to guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's actually Germany. Is it really? It's Germany, uh, yeah. Man, I am. I'm blown away. I thought that you were, the, the trick answer was going to be from the African continent, but then you hit me with Germany. That No, it's Germany because all the world's coffee, again, like to Deborah's point, all the world's coffee, well, not all, a lot of the world's coffee goes to Germany. It's kind of blended and uh, mixed up, and then it's exported from there. So you think, you know, is that really necessary? Perhaps this should be happening in Africa, South America, um, Southeast Asia, they, they also grow a lot of coffee there. Maybe that's where some of these things uh, should be happening. Of course, the other side of it is that the consumers, and that uh, economically is the challenge that um, a lot of the growth models that we have is that they are in the global north, a lot of rich consumers who have money to spend. So everybody down here is thinking of what can I make for them that they are going to send me money for. So that's what the idea is. So that, that means things start traveling uh, across. But there is an opportunity. And uh, like for us in Africa, you know, my business is in agriculture. One of them is like, if we got food sufficient, you know, a lot of Africa, we are still not food sufficient. We still import quite a bit of food. So if we got food sufficient, that's creating jobs, um, value here in our markets, etc. We have a lot of raw materials. So um, you mentioned the iPhone and, you know, the big stories like in the Congo, um, with coltan and all these other rare minerals, which are picked up in you know not very large amounts, shipped across the world everywhere to make the phones. Should we be doing some of that production in these markets? So that's kind of where we start seeing for uh, our manufacturing. The, the huge opportunity in manufacturing is looking at just the resources that you have internally. What can you do uh, with them and and turn them into something? Um, beneficial so the, and there are opportunities there if we start looking at them that way so traditionally unfortunately sometimes people do start thinking about um, uh, industries that helped other countries in the you know grow you know whether it was in metals it was in vehicles and those kind of things but you know the future is changing we need to look at what are the resources that you have near you and you may be able to serve the world with them um, but you can also serve your local markets with them and and try and engage with them uh, that way just to try and get them going again there was also the circularity issue because there is a lot of waste and um 
we do have, although the West came up with a, a linear economy uh, and you know it, very deep roots and uh, pretty expansive, we don't have to go that way. I like what Deborah said about mobile money about, uh, I think four years ago, five years ago, uh, Kenya basically had 50% of the mobile, the world's mobile money users because, because M-Pesa, which we use here, was so successful. I think the rest of the world has got onto the story. So now we are no longer as big, but it's huge. I mean, it's huge and it works, it works very well uh, in our market here. So we can create new systems that doesn't mean that we have to follow the same line that uh, everybody else went, um, the rest of the world went through. And the key thing there being how we can conserve resources. Because again, we're in a resource scarce uh, environment. This uh, morning or earlier on, I was talking to our steel, uh, the chair of our steel sector, and the price of steel is just going through the roof at the moment um, because of Australia, having a fight with China, China making demands and uh, no export things. I mean, it's global things happening everywhere. So we've got metals around here, we can reuse them. And if we can get find ways of recycling them, we don't have a lot of iron ore, but we still have quite a lot of metal that we can recycle and reuse and find other materials perhaps that would help us in this um, environment. So yeah, yeah that's uh, my bit to add on to that, yeah. New opportunities. <laughs> lots of opportunity, lots of challenges, yeah. lots of opportunities. And, you know, yeah. I, I love how both of y'all used the mobile money example because mm-hmm. I think that's a, an outstanding, um, you know, the, the information age that we're in, and it's cliche, but that truly is where we are. And and with the 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 people and the ideas that, that make up the African continent, you know, that's where real innovation, not cliche innovation, you know, because that's, that's one of those words too. But, but, new ideas that can really be practically introduced to the marketplace and help and, and help provide opportunity in, in a very, very tangible way. And um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that in, in the, um, in the years to come, especially as, as you mentioned, Mushai, um, Africa isn't looked at as a, um, a resource, um, you know, warehouse or, or um, you know, folks, see value in creating stuff and building stuff right there in Africa. And, and it changes kind of how industry has looked and that, 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 that age old paradigm. So I love it. And I love how you're bringing a variety of sectors and ideas together and uh, we'll have to have you back on and, and put our finger on the pulse of all the cool things you're doing. But Deborah, uh, Musha just shared quite a bit there and I, and I bet you're chomping at a bit to kind of add on a couple of things or, or share anything else that strikes you from what Musha just walked us through. Related. Another trend. Um, this last year has proven that it is possible for us to work with each other, not physically co-located. And I am hopeful that this actually starts to open up the world's labor market. Uh, I think right now we have a lot of desire for people to go to different countries for a higher wage. Um, there's going to be a lot of complications around this, but I predict in the future we're going to export less goods around the world, and we're going to be exporting talent, um, not physically exporting, digitally exporting, where we can all stay where we want to be, but work with each other around the world. And I think this will happen with manufacturing. I think a lot of the future of manufacturing is actually going to be um, engineers taking care of the automation and robots, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're on a spectrum. Of course, there's the best manufacturers in the world have some factories that are 
very low digitized and some that are fully automated. And GE is one of those. We have some factories that have almost no automation and all the way up to the additive manufacturing that we do that's fully automated. Um, So I think that's going to be an interesting move and the ability to work in manufacturing, even work on the line and not physically be there. Uh, So this to me is represents such a wonderful space, especially given the youth bubble in so many African countries. Um, They're, they're digital natives, they're growing up familiar, comfortable interacting with the world, they're finding people out, you know, on zoom in different in different countries. And I think a knowledge exchange that was previously facilitated by universities or the international development community can now happen organically. Uh, with an internet connection, which I'm incredibly optimistic about what that will lead to if we can get youth connected uh, in the the SDGs is one great way there. There's a wonderful organization working across Africa, the Youth for SDGs. Um, the, the, uh, the amount of optimism and, and why can't we do this attitude we see in younger people, um, I'm just very optimistic about where that's going to go. So the idea of, of regionally, what can we do with what we have? And I want to challenge everyone in the world to do that. We have to stop shipping so much around the world. <laughs> Transportation accounts for 15% of global emissions. And if we continue the way we are, we literally won't be able to grow food anymore. There's a little bit of a uh, issue we've got ahead of us. We need to come together to solve. So there's that piece, but then this global collaboration piece uh, I'm just so excited about what I've witnessed so far in this last year, especially in what that means for the future. Excellent. Excellent point. Uh, th- there has been a ton of, of um, big wins, innovations, and takeaways that's been part of the silver lining of this last 18 months. And, and uh, I love your optimism there because it will. It's going to change industry and it's going to provide a ton of opportunity as long as leaders and organizations apply these, these big lessons learned. And, you know, and, and, not to be too dramatic, but give the people what they want. You know, I think we've learned uh, that traditional mindset, work, uh, leadership or management, maybe mindset of you know eight to five in the office every day, fighting the commute. You know, that's what is supposed to happen. You know, it's been really neat to see all the companies that have have uh, you know kind of terminated their leases and let people work and produce and contribute where they you know where and how they want to do so. So um, it's interesting. Uh, all right, so Mushai, um, I'm going to ask you both in a minute. My next one of my last questions is a eureka moment. We're kind of touching on the eureka moments uh, from the pandemic, but uh, before we ask each of y'all that, any anything else from a um, a global business perspective or local perspective that you want to share in, ter- in terms of something you're tracking? Yeah, I think um, on the sustainability side um, and supply chains, I think it's just that that whole idea of uh, solutions and and how how can we find solutions i think deborah has heard me talk about this before but it's one of my favorites was uh, the wizard and the prophet is a book by charles seaman um i don't know if you heard of it it's a it's a great book and he just talked about two people two contemporaries in the 40s late 40s to the early 50s who were looking at food and food supplies of the world and um you know one of them i think it was william Vought. he was the first environmentalist kind of the father of environmental movement. And he said, too many people, we can't, we're not going to be able to feed them. We don't have the resources to do it. Uh, But the other guy um, was uh, Burlock, uh, Norman, Norman Ernest Burlock. And he said, 
too many people, how are we going to feed them? Let's figure out a way to feed them. And he was uh, basically, he solved uh, food supply, the father of the Green Revolution, got a Nobel Prize and so on. And I, I like to be on the positive side uh, of, yes, we can solve these issues. Um, it doesn't mean that we do nothing because sometimes there are people who think, you know, don't worry, somebody will solve it in the future. I think we have to start solving it now. The, the, you know, the, the challenge is urgent. So we need to deal with it now, but we can find solutions. So I think there is that side of, um, yeah, people looking at solutions, you know, like we've seen now with, um, well, I'm seeing at the cutting edge batteries, uh, like wind power, you know, so in, in Kenya, for instance, we have the greenest electricity, it's hydro, geothermal, wind power, tends to be the main part of our, we are at the top of the world on green energy, so to speak. Um, not uh, not on top of the world with how much energy we have or the price, but <laughs> but we are up there anyway. Um, and uh, you know you can find solutions to these things because they, they were they were there and so on. But one of my favorite stories, like I said, inspirationally when I started was um, uh, if you take this in the biblical account from the Garden of Eden, there was no iPhone in the Garden of Eden. They didn't call each other on the iPhone. Right. But, you know, if you take the creation story or whatever your creation story is, there was no iPhone. But there was an iPhone. Everything to make an iPhone was there. Okay? I mean, it was there. They just had to go, you know, centuries, decades, whatever, to find out how to make all these things work together to create an iPhone. So what else is there? You know, there's, there's stuff out there. We, we are kind of living with it. And... Um, if we could discover it, if we put our minds to it, and um, and also just think about what we can change, because some things we can change. Sometimes we do take that we go down the wrong route, and we can't change, and then you know we can make life better. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna completely steal that Garden of Eden uh, analogy there, Mushai. That is wonderful. Um, I, I want to bring up one more thing before we uh, move to Eureka moments, and and Deborah, you touched on this earlier. Um, you know the digital divide. You know. I tell you, um, during the um, quarantine here in the States, at least in our home, all three of our kids went remote for a year and we were fortunate. Uh, of course, they stole all my bandwidth and production took a hit from the home studio. But, um, but you know, they were fortunate to have what they needed from an equipment standpoint and, and perhaps even more important, a connectivity standpoint, right? Um, we find that divide here in the States. And of course, we find it, we find it everywhere else around the globe. And it really is a, such a huge barrier. Um, any comment uh, for uh, Deborah? Any any um, thing you want to elaborate on when it comes to the digital divide? I do, and I'm going to break it into two categories. One, you've probably seen the funny Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and at the bottom they hand draw in Wi-Fi. But then there's another one that underneath they draw in battery life, and I bring that up because access to power and energy in many frontier markets is often more challenging than finding uh, an available and public Wi-Fi connection. Um, as I reflect on pictures we've seen here in America from the pandemic of um, little kids standing outside of a Taco Bell to get their Wi-Fi and the, the assumptions that many of our policymakers and administrators make about the availability of resources for our youth and for our society, I'm hoping those are now a bit more challenged that not everyone has Wi-Fi. 
more now, yes, but not everyone does. And then even more than that, the ability to charge whatever it is that device that you're working on. <clears throat> and so I think there's a, a great potential for us there. And as we continue to expand uh, availability of Wi-Fi batteries, devices, um, again, we'll, we'll be able to connect the world and make more resources available to folks. So a couple of interesting ones to go and look at, you know, more people in the world have access to, to cell phones than toilets, not necessarily smartphones, um, but the infrastructure building that even if, if someone does have access, it doesn't mean they've got access to all the other parts of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so interesting one to go and be curious about. Uh, there's a great website I encourage folks to go to called Dollar Street. Uh, it imagines the world as one big street and your neighbors make only slightly more and only slightly less than you. And we find that actually income levels around the world, your homes, your toys, your kitchen look almost exactly the same. And so we're, we're more similar than we are different. And I think there's a lot of ways that we can come together and grow together. Love that. I love that. So we'll, we'll try to include that dollar street and the link to that wizard and the profit that you mentioned, Mushai. Um, and by the way, while we're, while we're doing some program notes, Annie Murray was the legendary innovative figure in the history of the Clorox company that really changed the game back early. So Annie Murray. So uh, fascinating. All right. So Mushai, I, I want to, we've covered so much ground and I know that they're, they're, you know, an hour, you think we can get everything in an hour, but we really can't. Uh, and Mushai, so what, what I want to kind of start to wrap on, continuing this trend of Eureka moments. We've learned so much uh, from uh, the last couple of years here, but what, Mushai, what, what's one thing that really sticks out? What, what's a powerful Eureka moment that that's really hit you and, and kind of made you stay in your tracks for a second? Yeah, I think, well, of course, there's a lot around COVID that has been um, new and changed. The, the, the surprise about how fast things could change and, you know, just, direct uh, and some for good and some for bad maybe say with the difficult times and and so on but i think there's one thing i did read which was useful and, and ties in also with our sustainability story was um, somebody writing that you know we share the planet with many other uh species that we don't know about or so this virus didn't kind of well, depending on who you read and so on, it wasn't manufactured, right? There was, there are coronaviruses out there in bats that we actually live, we share this planet with them. And to some extent they have, I don't know whether I would say they have a right to the planet more than them, but they're there, they share. And so there's a balance in the planet that we need to be so aware of. And um, you could, you know, if we knock it off, it can really go, it can change our world totally from what we we think. You know, we, we think about how the dinosaurs went extinct. And, we, you know, it's kind of like a, a big story from the past. But, yeah, things can change uh, significantly. But yet we have within our hands the power to to change a lot, to influence a lot, to, uh, to make things work better. So we can do a lot um, with what we have, even with the, with the little we have. Um, you told me one thing, but I have to add the last one because it's very close supply chain is, yeah. is vaccinations again. And vaccination is such a supply chain story, you know, about where, where are we going to get these vaccines? Uh, why aren't people are kind of now like, why don't we 
make vaccines in, in the African continent or in other places? You know, how come only a few people make vaccines? And um, if they are becoming such a useful thing for uh, humanity and we need to do that. So, and again, it was to what Deborah was saying that there was this sense of concentration. So we had a few huge vaccine manufacturers and maybe now we're going to have to split it out and say, okay, let's get uh, smaller production in different uh, parts of the world so that we can make things uh, happen quickly. So in Africa, we, it's still a challenge getting vaccination um, across Africa. And like they keep saying at the WHO, unless everybody is vaccinated, you know, we're not doing anything. We, we have to do the whole world. So that's that's a big challenge for us now. Agreed. There, definitely. Yeah. There's going to be... Um, Business schools are going to have so much fodder uh, to dive into from the last 18 months for decades to come, really. Um, So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, All right. Mm. So, Deborah, speaking of eureka moments, you've you've kind of already, both of you have already shared a few here, but specifically from the pandemic, what's, what's been a powerful eureka moment for you? You know, I'm going to share a topic I learned about during the pandemic because I've already talked about the pandemic a lot. Uh, which relates to the Garden of Eden story on uh, materials and availability. We've been running this whole time on the assumption that we need to take something out of the planet as a resource and use that to fuel our economy. The innovation around biomaterials and biofacturing that's starting to become called is really tremendous. It's the idea based on research that 60%, 60% 60%, 60% of the 100 million, t- sorry, 100 billion tons of material that enter the global economy every year could come from biology. That means we can start to unhook ourselves from resources inside the planet and instead grow them with a science that we're only starting to really understand. We only know so much about science. It seems like we know a lot. We can vaccinate ourselves against these diseases. That's amazing. There's so much more that can happen there. Uh, so it's an area I, I encourage people to go and look up. And again, something, a new tool for all of us as we start to imagine what could regional uh, manufacturing look like, uh, the quality levels we've been so worried about when we think about decentralization can be augmented with sensorization and the technologies that are becoming more available to us Uh, and more affordable to us that we can understand, okay, this is the right technology because we have sensors in place, et cetera. And that can be fueled for the majority, 60% by materials that we can grow. And this is really exciting to me. I have not taken biology since I was 15 years old. However, uh, the excitement around this space, a company called Zymergen just IPO'd recently, um, fascinating for people to go and look at. And again, it gets me very, very optimistic about resource availability because in this last year, Scott, we have all become resource constrained environments and we all start to understand how can we innovate with what we've got around us. I love that. Um, I really love that. And speaking of biology, I was horrible at chemistry. I was horrible, horrible at calculus, but I love biology. And thanks to Miss Bowen and Miss Woods, both at Schofield Middle School, for taking extra time with me. So uh, it's it's <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Um, all right. So um, you know, I kind of don't want to end this conversation. I'm learning so much. I've got my 17 pages of notes and then some. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have uh, this conversation with both of y'all. 
But uh, Michelle, let's make sure folks know how to connect with you. And, and, and um, you know, I'm sure you get plenty of inbounds based on your, your crazy schedule. But how can folks connect with you and, and what you are doing, both at CKL, CKL Africa and the Kenya Association of Manufacturers? Yep. Okay. So um, everybody's on the internet and you, you can find us. We are at uh, um, our website is kem.co.ke. And CKL Africa was great. It's just CKL.Africa. So it's very easy to find <laughs> on the internet. Um, um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I know my name is a bit hard to get through, but I guess it will be printed out somewhere. So Mushai Konyha, both on LinkedIn and on um, Twitter. Uh, I'm not very active on LinkedIn, but at least we're, we're there. And uh, Twitter is a bit more active. You see a bit more of what we do. You know, yeah. it's interesting. Uh, Twitter is kind of like Crocs or licorice. Folks either love it or hate it. You know, um, <laughs> I agree with you, uh, Mushad. You know, it's 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 there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of negativity. But if you really use it to to learn new things and and meet people and cultivate relationships, it's a really powerful tool. So all uh, about who you follow. Agreed. It's who yeah. you follow. Yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. And, and to your point, we will make it one click. So we'll include your bio and, and links uh, in the show notes. Folks can connect with you both. Um, Deborah, Deborah Dahl, thanks so much for your time and facilitating this, this dialogue here. How can folks connect with you? Absolutely. I, am, I aspire to be across social media platforms at Circular Nomad with an underscore instead of a space. I, I like licorice and I, I had a croc phase in college when it wasn't that weird. I tried Twitter out. I will be inspired after this discussion to be more active on Twitter. And you know, Mushai, they say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I find social media is quite similar. If you choose to follow thought leaders and optimistic folks, then your day goes a little bit better. And I find that LinkedIn stays to send, tends to stay a bit more civil than Twitter. And you've really got to have your cup of coffee before you get on Twitter sometimes. But you know what, both of you, thanks for the dose of inspiration. I'll go send my first tweet in several months. Here it, here it comes, folks. It's happening now. Hey, uh, the countdown's on. Uh, circular underscore nomad. So check that out. Um, but really appreciate it. again for me. One of the big common themes here today was, uh, you know, blessed are those that facilitate dialogue and conversations and learning opportunities. And and both of y'all are doing that uh, in spades. And I, I really appreciate that. So big thanks to you both. We've been talking with Mushai Kuniha. Uh, chairman of Kenya Association of Manufacturers, and of course, uh, Group Chief Executive Officer at CKL Africa. So big thanks, Mushai, and our dear friend, Deborah Dole, uh, who helped us make it happen, Principal Manufacturing Product Management, GE Digital, and founder at the Circular Supply Chain Network. You'll find links to uh, all this information and these two individuals in the show notes. So big thanks to you both, Deborah and Mushai. Great. Thanks you very much. Enjoyed it. We did too. We'll have you back. Yeah. So to our to our listeners, our audience, and our community, hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation, this wide-ranging conversation as much as I have. Uh, this has been a very informative and intriguing and, and learned a ton here with these two leaders. Hey, um, on behalf of our entire team here at Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton signing off for now. Hope you hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. But most importantly, be like these two. Do good, give forward, 
be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Thank you.